listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Well, good morning, y'all. Glad you're here. It's a holiday weekend. That's uh, Columbus Day weekend. So what a great day to start a brand new series, right, when so many folks are gone. But that's all right. We're going to do this. Uh, we've just come out of a long period of time in Ephesians, 27 weeks to be exact. And so now we're in the fall of the year for everybody else in the world, for Florida. It's just, uh, what is it, late summer? And uh, then we'll go into cool summer, and then we'll go into spring summer, and then back to summer again. So, but uh, we are kind of in the fall of the year. Uh, so we're going to start a, a four-week series. And uh, so... What this is going to be is going to be immensely practical for you that are a part of our church, you that are a part of Oasis Church. Now, it's going to be, I think, helpful for anybody who's watching along because a lot of what we're going to discuss in the next four weeks is going to be pertinent to anyone involved in any church anywhere in the world. But because of of the season that we are in, particularly as a church, it is necessary, I believe, for us to address these issues. And you say, well, well, what exactly, what what, what season are you talking about? What what are we going into as a church? Well, many of you, if you're already a part of this ministry, know that Oasis Church is an elder-led ministry. And so basically what we have is a board of elders and, uh, and also trustees that, that, uh, that fill in those spots when we are, are in need of elders or haven't, don't have uh, enough there. They fill in and, and serve in that role. And we're excited that we're in a season as a church where we're very close to being in the uh, last phases of installing a brand new elder. And that's an exciting time for the church. But, but in order to get there, I want everybody to understand what that means. You know, what, what exactly does it mean to be an elder? And really, what exactly does God's Word say about church leadership anyway? I mean, where, where I grew up, you say, Pastor Kevin, where I grew up, it was the, you know, the deacons ran the church. They were the leaders, and the pastor told, did what they told him to do. Or, or, Pastor Kevin, I came from a church where, you know, pastor was in control and did nobody buck him. He said he wasn't the dictator. He was the only tater. So, you know, how exactly does that work out in, uh, y'all know, <laughs> y'all have heard that, but oh, Quince has. So, you know, how, how does that work in Oasis Church and what do we actually believe? So we're going to spend four weeks just kind of talking about church leadership. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, today, you're not going to hear anything you've never heard before. But if, but if we don't start this focus on this foundation, then we'll start off on the wrong foot. And so I want to make sure that we start off on the right foot as we approach church leadership. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at things that God has set up. And then it's our responsibility to step into that obediently. Today, our lesson is entitled, His Establishment. His Establishment. We're talking about ownership. 
Now, no, ch- no form of church government, and, and by church government, I just mean how do things run within a local church? There is no form of church government mentioned and spelled out specifically in Scripture. He doesn't say you have this person and then you have this number of these people and these are to lead this and those are to lead that. It doesn't spell it out. There's a lot of principles, but it doesn't spell it out specifically. It doesn't give detail on how it ought to be done. And and any attempt of a local body to try to to govern, to to lead, it's, it's all faulty because we're all faulty. And we all have our own little quirks and bents toward sin. So hopefully we're going to first understand who the church belongs to. Now, I know you know the the Sunday school answer. The Sunday school answer is, well, the church belongs to God. True. But let's look at Scripture. We're going to hit a lot of verses today. So if you got your version, you got your notes pulled up in the app, then uh, you should have all of those for you. Ms. Taylor's going to do her best to keep up with me as we go rapid fire on the, uh, on the screens up here this morning. And we're going to ask, who owns this thing called the church? First of all, we see that God is the owner because God holds the deed, if you will. Now, when we look at Scripture and we think about church government, we got to go back before the church and we got to say, did, did, had, did God, had God established anything prior to what we know of as the church, the body of Christ in this world? And the answer to that is yes. In the Old Testament, we read and understand the story of the nation of who, class? Israel. You see, God had a people prior to the church. Now, as a ministry, we do not think or we do not see theologically that the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church are not the same thing. That's how we see. These are two separate, unique, distinctly useful for a certain thing entity. Now, there are those within the church that think that the church is nothing but the New Testament people of God like the Old Testament, so Israel and church are the same thing. That's cool. That's just not what we believe. So we look back and we say, okay, who owned the people of Israel? Now, we don't have time to go through all of the Old Testament, but I'll give you one representative scripture found in the book of Leviticus. Chapter number 26, verse number 12. God says it very clearly when he says that his desire is to walk among you, Israel. My desire is to walk among you. I I desire to be a part of you. You say, how was God going to do that? Remember he had them to build a tent in the wilderness with all kinds of unique pieces of furniture in that tent. You remember what that little tent was called? It was called the tabernacle. What did the people do at the tabernacle? They worshipped. It's where God could commune with his people, Israel. Of course, we know that that once the the people were settled in the land of Canaan that God had promised them, then, then he allowed King Solomon to build what? The temple where God would come and meet with them very personally in the form 
of worship as the people would sacrifice and come to God in the temple. He says, I will walk among you and I will be your God. What what a blessing that the creator God wants to be one of us and wants to walk within one of us. And he says, you shall be who? My people. In the Old Testament, who held the deed on Israel? Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, nor any of his 12 sons. God alone held the deed. Israel is mine. But we come out of the Old Testament and we come into this New Testament entity that Jesus created that said was going to be made up of both Jew and Gentile on the basis of his work for us on the cross through his death and resurrection by belief in him we become a new people that Jesus created for himself. We know that entity to be called the church, the followers of Jesus by faith in his death and resurrection. In the New Testament, we see that the church also belongs to God. Acts chapter 20, verse number 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he says, Be, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Not to care for your church, not to care for your thing. This is not a franchise, the church is not. This is simply a stewardship over which leaders have been given the opportunity to steward what belongs to God. 1 Peter 2.10, Peter says, once you were not a people. Now, he was speaking primarily to Gentiles here. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You've been brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Whose people are you now by faith in Jesus? You're God's people. You say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a covenant partner at Oasis Church. Great. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, you belong to him. You belong to God because he holds the deed, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus is speaking to Peter. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build what? My church. My church. How many times have we been in a local church, or, or how many times have we been in a conversation about church, and we use those, term, those terms like mine and ours? You know, hey, I saw, I saw uh, so-and-so the other day. Do you know he's a preacher now? And, and uh, boy, his church is, and we fill in the And we know that what we're saying is just simply we're communicating it's where he is. But if we're not really careful, we can begin to see it truly as ours, that we grasp and hold control. God says, no, this establishment is mine. I hold the deed. On our way to, to celebrating the installation, or, or, or better yet, going through the process of proving in order to install a new leader, a new elder, we've got to keep in mind, all of that has to be done under the clear understanding of this belongs 
to him. It's certainly ours to mess up. But if we're going to follow his leading, we've got to recognize his ownership. He holds the deed. Not only that, he's not one who owns the deed and then gives us the opportunity to just run with it. No, he's also the owner-operator. He's the, he's the CEO of the church. You say, well, what does that mean? Jesus, he's the chief everything officer. Not, not only does he own the establishment, not only does he own the deed, does he own, own the people, he clocks in every day as the chief everything officer. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, if, if 26, 7 weeks wasn't enough, we're right back to Ephesians. Paul says, and he, God the Father, put all things under his, God the Son's, feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Jesus is in control. Not only is he the owner, God the Son wants to lead as the chief executive. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. How many churches have made decisions on the basis of what they think best and what they want to do and where they want to build and how they want to look without ever giving any thought to, Lord, what do you want in this place? It's, it's very common, and, and, and it's, it's very normal language for us to even say, even tonight as we have a covenant, covenant partners meeting. So if you're a covenant partner and, and, uh, and you've gone through all the process, we'd like for you to come and be a part of the meeting tonight at 6.30, or you can Zoom in. You've got all that information. But we're going to be talking about things that we can't, we can't necessarily find directly in Scripture. But we can look for the principles. We can lay those decisions out before the Lord and bathe them in prayer and just ask Him for wisdom. And God, what is it that you want? Because ultimately, that's what we want is what you want. Because not only is He the deed holder, He's the owner, operator. In Ephesians 5, 23 and 24, we we already know that these verses are talking about how we as followers of Christ let the life of Christ be lived out in us in the home as as we were talking to husbands and wives. But it also gives us the indication of how things are supposed to also work within the church as he's explaining that. Verse 23 of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians 4, the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. See, we're reinforcing how husbands and wives need to operate with one another. But don't forget, it's a a simple reflection of how it works for the church. Christ is the head. He is the leader, the head of his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Don't miss it. The church submits to Christ. I wonder how many problems in churches 
people problems and, 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 and things that happen in relationships and, and, and that become toxic and divisive and splitting. I wonder how many of those things could have been avoided if the body just stepped back and, 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 and just kind of laid all the cards of the issues that were going on in that body and just laid them out and said, God, help us through this. How do you want us to navigate through all of this junk? Do you think that Jesus is able to help us to weed through all of the mess that we bring to the table? Of course he is. What does it take? Submission. Where we lay it out and we say, okay, God, here's the grumble, here's the gripe, here's the severed relationship, here's the us and the they, here's the, here's the issue, here's the wall that's been built. Okay, God, through the Holy Spirit, you show us how we're to address this and we'll submit. And, and I just have to believe fewer churches would split. F- fewer folks would be hurt. Because what does Christ do? What what does the gospel mean? It means healing and restoration. And and all it requires is just we just let go of self and let him run the show. But that's hard. You know why? Because we have to save face. Our pride is too big. Our thoughts and our opinions are often too immovable. And it just breaks up. And it leaves folks in the wake, hurting and discouraged. If if we're going to talk about church leadership, we got to know who owns it. we got to remember who runs it. But within this, Jesus also, God also raises up representatives. So yes, he owns it, and yes, he leads it. But in his grace, in his sovereignty... He felt that it was a worthwhile thing to do to raise up representatives to lead, listening to him, obeying him, and to be one of them, just sort of setting the path. Jesus is leading, and then he sets up leaders that are to follow him, and then those are to follow them. And you say, why would God do that? I have no idea why God would do that. But in his sovereignty, in his decision-making process, he raises up representatives to lead his people. In the Old Testament, we're we're not going to go to the verses. We're we're not going to find them anywhere. We're we're just going to kind of blow over the top of them, okay? If if you say, well, I need Bible for that. Well, we'll spend a half a day, and we can go through the Old Testament and defend all of these. Who are some of these earthly representatives that God raised in the Old Testament? Well, first we see the patriarchs. We see that God led in the Old Testament through the people of Israel. He raised up the patriarchs. You say, well, well, who are the patriarchs? Well, we're referring to like Abraham, who was the first of the nation of Israel. He was called as a foreigner to follow a God he'd never met before. And he would be the first of a brand new nation, one of the patriarchs, Isaac, his son. Was, was handed the promise that, that Abraham was given was, was then passed down to Isaac. 
And, and so Isaac received the, the promise that God had made to his father. And then when Isaac was gone, it was handed down to his son Jacob, who ironically was the youngest of the two. And most would have assumed that Esau would have been the, the recipient of that blessing, but that was not to be. It was, it was God's intention for it to be Jacob's. You go, why? I don't know. I don't even know why he would want to use either one of those clowns. Yet he chose to extend that blessing to Jacob. And then from Jacob to his 12 sons, the patriarchs. We think about the next to the last one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, who was that representative leader. If you think about his starving people in Israel just wondering how they were going to meet their next meal and, 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 and Joseph in Egypt who had been sold there as a slave and yet God used to prepare for his own people to survive an earthly calamity. The patriarchs. God raised them up. You go, why did he do that? I, I, I don't know. And they, they, they didn't really even seem to be men of character. He just raised them up to lead. Then he moves on to just individuals. So these wouldn't be considered patriarchs because the, the people of Israel now have grown into a great number. And it seems like that as the story of Israel goes, that it's like God's just going, okay, I'm going to pick you. That's, of course, not what he was doing, but they were just seemingly obscure individuals. I think about that one who was put in a basket and sent down the river. How encouraged are you mothers about that, putting your child in a basket in a crocodile-infested river? But God says, no, I'm going I'm to supernaturally protect him. He's going to be raised in the, in the king Pharaoh's house, and I'm going to bring him up, and he's going to lead my people. Was Moses qualified to do this? No. He was a murderer. He was a hothead. And he really didn't want to do what God asked him to do, and God yet used him anyway. Moses. We see individuals like Joshua. Who, who wants to step into Moses' shoes after we've parted the Red Sea and everybody walks on dry ground and the Bread came from heaven and water came out of the rock. And then when folks bucked up against Moses, the Bible tells us that the earth opened and Korah and all his followers fell down. Who wants to follow that guy? And yet God called Joshua to be strong and very courageous. It's okay, Joshua, because I'm with you. I'm going to fight the battles for you. We see men like Nehemiah coming back to build a wall that had been destroyed. And, and not only that, how was he going to get out of his position, very powerful position in, in, the, in the land of, of Persia? How was he going to get out of that? And yet God superseded on his behalf so that he might come back and lead the efforts to rebuild the wall of Israel that had been torn down. Men like Ezra and Zerubbabel, the ones who came with or, or from the same area to encourage the people, to lead the people, to govern, to be in charge. We see in the Old Testament men called judges. When, when there were no kings, when there were no, uh, there, there were no uh, uh, leaders, Joshua was gone. Now what's going to happen? God would raise up judges. And sometimes the, these fellows would just be about as bad as God's enemies. And yet he would raise them up to lead his people. Men like Samuel. Men like Samson. We like him. Strong man. Bad morals. Bad guy. 
But God raised him up and used him for a purpose to lead his people. Men like Gideon, a coward. And yet with 300 men routed, with 300 men and some water pots and some lanterns routed the enemy many hundreds of times greater than they. And of course, when we talk about Israel, when we talk about the leaders, of course we're going to talk about the kings. Men like Saul, David, Ahab, Hezekiah. You see, God holds the deed. God is the CEO, the chief everything officer of his people in Israel, but he did raise human leaders. He did the same thing in the New Testament. So Jesus establishes a brand new entity. Now everyone who is going to be the people of God must come by faith in me, believing that yes, I am Messiah, yes, I have been crucified, and yes, I am alive. And those who by faith follow me, I'm going to set apart some to lead. We see those first leaders set apart were called apostles. These were individuals that Jesus specifically chose, you and you, and you, and you. And then there was that one guy who wasn't even a part of this crowd that got called several years later on his way to try to stomp out the church. His name was Paul. And we see God picking and choosing leaders that we probably would have never chosen to be a pastor, more or less a Sunday school teacher in our congregation, and yet Jesus is picking them to lead his people under his authority, listening to his direction. So we know the apostles, but then he also sets apart others who will lead. Because, you know, the apostles are all dead, right? But the beat goes on. The church goes on. And how will God do that in the days following the apostles? By picking folks to lead, and to just be one of them that just are the front line following him. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, And God appointed in the church first apostles, right, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. What is God doing? We're, we're seeing this verse giving kind of like, a, like a, a, an overarching view of how God led in the early church. How are we going to do this apart from the apostles? How are we going to know that God's at work? And he says, well, I've got all kinds of ways that I'm going to show you my activity as we move forward through more human representatives. Ephesians 4, 13, uh, 11 through 13, and he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When are we going to arrive at that maturity? I'm going to tell you, when Christ returns and removes all of the roadblocks keeping us from experiencing everything that his salvation provides for us. Until then, what are we doing? We're following, we're leading, we're building one another up, we're encouraging one another. 
through his design for representation. Colossians 1, 24 and 25, Now I rejoice in my suffering, Paul saying, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to a stewardship from God that was given to me for you. For what purpose, Paul? To make the word of God fully known. Paul says, I'm only doing what I'm doing. I'm suffering what I'm suffering because God says, I want you to represent me uniquely in this time for the purpose and progress of the gospel. And and Paul's saying, I'm just doing what God's given me to do for you. 1 Timothy 3, verse number 5. He's given Timothy instructions, and we're going to go back to this in the next few weeks to come. But he says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The idea is if he is caring for his own household, then he can appropriately what? Care for the church. In what way? As a unique representative. As the, as the chief? No. As the under-shepherd, under the chief, under the owner. Acts 20, verse number 28. Again, Paul is speaking to the, uh, we've, we've already read this verse, but Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way actually to, be, uh, to, to run into a riot and then get arrested and then all his way to Rome. But he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, what? An overseer. Well, what does that mean? Come back. Come back next week, I think. We're going to talk about all of these words being used in the New Testament. What did they mean and how did they work together? But at least we understand through that word, we've been placed in order to oversee, in order to shepherd, to care, to love, to lead, to represent under the leader, under the owner. We see that he holds the deed. We see that he's the owner-operator. We see that he raises up representatives both in the Old Testament and in the New. And then lastly, I just want to kind of bring something to, to, to get you thinking. In this area of human leadership, we want to recognize that God values plurality. And I say this because it's going to, it, it's going to matter in the weeks to come. Because I don't want you to think that, okay, well, God's called a a Moses. God's called a, a Joshua. God's called a Paul. I want you to understand that even in the midst of those individuals who get a lot of page time, if you will, a lot of their name being mentioned, you need to understand that God does not ever put an isolated leader in charge to do what he or she thinks best. God values plurality. I I love the story that we find way back in the book of Numbers. Moses has been charged to lead uh, hundreds of thousands of Israelites. You know, there are some that estimate that this was, you know, one to two million people that came out of Egypt. Those numbers are, they're hard to pin down. But we know that Israel was at least in the hundreds of thousands And one guy was trying to do things by himself. 
One guy was trying to listen to God. One guy was trying to listen to all the disruptions. You know, the line was long, and it's, it's Bob, and it's Joey, and they're there, and they're talking to Moses about how Joey's got his tent too close to my tent, and his sheep are gnawing on my tent post. Moses, what are you going to do? And I mean, the line, if you can imagine, hundreds of thousands of people with all manner of grievances with one another. You know, so Moses was just over his head in the weeds, listening to all these things that they were bringing to him. Then the Lord said to Moses in Numbers 11, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. God doesn't expect human leaders to do this as a lone ranger venture. Because God values our weakness. God values what he created in us, making us beneficial for one another, working better with than by ourselves. And so he creates this notion of plurality, if we'll listen, if we'll be willing to submit, if we'll be willing to get off of the leader's chair and allow others to speak and to hear and to lead. And at the end of the day, one may have to speak on behalf of all. One may have to strike off in that position of leadership. But we're allowing God to move through those that he's placed around us. We see this fleshed out in the Proverbs. Very plainly, Proverbs 15, 22 reminds us that without counsel plans fall. But with many advisors, they succeed. Listen, you know this has worked out a bunch of times in your life. Uh, I've told this story before, but I know there's a bunch of new folks here that haven't been with us for very long, so I'll tell this story again. I struck out with my own plan. No, when I say struck out, I mean I started out, but you're going to see that by the, I do actually mean I struck out with my own plan. So my wife and I bought a cabinet for our bathroom in the first place that we lived. And, and it was going to be a perfect cabinet because it was going to fit perfectly. I'm not going to tell you who said it was going to fit perfectly. It didn't. But I had already got it built and in the room, and I was at, the, I was at a high threshold of aggravation. Okay, I didn't want to take it apart. And so... I had a singular unilateral idea. I know what I'll do. I'll make room. The cabinet just needs to be about that much farther or that much shorter. So across the yard I went to my father-in-law's house where I grabbed the circular saw. I know how this works. Plugged up the circular saw, set it down, drew me a line. It needs to be this much shorter. Now, you men who are builders, 
you're going to quickly realize that I'm not a builder because I laid that circular saw down and I began to cut. And I'm cutting and I'm noticing my cut's not too straight, but that's okay. I can live with it, right? I probably could have picked something else. And I'm cutting along and I'm cutting along and I'm almost there and boom, I run into the wall. But those of you who know a circular saw know that there's a guard on the end of the circular saw. The saw won't get all the way to the wall. So now I've got a cabinet with a cut this long that needs to be this long. Now what am I going to do? Well, I got a good idea. I went up to my father-in-law's house and found his flimsy saw, and I brought it in there, and I started cutting like this right here till I got to the wall, scrubbed the wall. But you know what? The cabinet fit. But what had I done? I had unilaterally got frustrated, and I had struck off, and I made a colossal all by myself, when I could have very easily went to my father-in-law and said, come down here, let's talk about how to make this happen. I need this cabinet to fit. I need, we didn't even keep that cabinet, did we? I think we ultimately got rid of the cabinet, and then what we were left with was a boogered-up uh, countertop that, that I could take full responsibility for. What's the point? <laughs> Without counsel, bathrooms get destroyed. But with many advisors, plans succeed. Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise guidance, you can wage war. If you've got wisdom, then you can wage a war. And in abundance of counselors, there's victory. Do we just want to wage war or do we want to experience victory? Well, I think we all want victory. So we need one another, Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. What's the point? The point is, is that as we're thinking about leadership, we need to understand God owns the deed on the church. And if God owns the deed on the big C church, then God owns the deed on all the little C churches. But not only is he the deed holder, he's the CEO. He's the owner-operator through Christ. He not only owns it, he desires to lead it. But in his leading, he has established representatives who are to listen to him, who are to be the first out the door, but giving something to follow. But at the end of the day, they're just one of us, flawed and in need of grace and mercy at every turn. And in that leadership structure, God values us over me, if that makes sense. So what are some of the applications? Well, I folded them up. Applications are no human representatives are to run the church so as we move into this thinking about church leadership, as we move into how we're going to, to uh, fulfill this process that we have and we want to keep it rooted in God's Word and listen to God's Son, we need to recognize that nobody runs the church. No human being, that is. No human representative of Christ is ever given the authority 
to run it. And second, no local church is ours or mine or theirs or his. It belongs to God. We get to be a part of it. We get to be blessed as a result of it. We get to bring what God has put in us to the table because it is needed, but it's not ever ours. That's a rope we must never cling to. It always belongs to him. We get to be a part. And then lastly, I just want to remind you that this local body is just one small, teeny, tiny, but very important piece of God's masterpiece called the church. You say, we might not ever reach the masses of the world. You you might be right, but we're very important to God's plan because he's established it. He's established us, and he has a plan for us that is suited specifically for this place, and it should be our desire to fulfill that at any cost for his glory and the building of his kingdom. Amen? Okay. So that's where we're headed. See, I told you. Wasn't going to tell you anything you didn't already know, but that foundation must be laid. It belongs to him. He runs it. We listen to him as he gives us the privilege to lead. When we come back next week, we'll talk about his representatives. Week three, we'll talk about his qualifications Week number four, we'll talk about how all of that looks right here. I preached this series in 2013, and so I felt like it was time to dust it off and bring it out again since we're preparing to install a new elder, and you get to be a part of the process. I hope you'll be back to understand how you are to be involved in his work here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, that you, are our, you are our owner. You own us, and that's a great thing. God, we thank you that Jesus leads us. He'll never lead us astray. God, I'm thankful that, uh, that, that even in the framework of leadership, you put us together. So together we might, uh, we might know better We might know how to lead. We might avoid pitfalls and sin, and and we might address things in a a proper way, in a a Christ-honoring way, in a biblical way, always in a loving way. God, I pray that you'll help us as we move forward through these instructions, as we look to your word. Give uh, Give us the courage not only to hear them, but to embrace them. So walk it out in real time, and then, Father, we look forward to you growing those that are called to lead in this body. Father, I pray for that one who might have come in and they're still wondering about their standing with you. I pray that you'll impress on their heart very clearly that being in church does not make them right with God. That trying real hard to do good things and, 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 and trying to do more good things than bad things will, will never earn what demands absolute perfection. 
God, I pray that you'll help those that, that, that may consider what they have to do in order to earn your favor. I pray that you'll turn all their eyes to the one who was lifted up in their place for their sin, doing for them what they could never do, paying a price with perfection, holiness, and righteousness. God, I pray that they will see Jesus crucified for them, raised in victory. So that they might have eternity with you? Yes. So that they might live out your intention for them today. So that we might walk in righteousness. So that we might walk as as representatives of, of Jesus. Reflections of his character. So that we might live that out for your glory today. Pray that if they have not yet trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone by faith. They will surrender themselves to him, taking him above all others, setting all others aside. Father, if that's confusing, I pray that you'll encourage them to hang around so that we can talk to them more. They might fully understand what it means, child of God by faith. God, we got a week ahead of us, and we don't know anything about, but we know you do. Father, we've got folks that are hurting, that are, that are in need of, a, of, of an answer, those that are sick, those that are, that are stressed. I think about specifically, uh, we just want to lift up Austin and Hannah Bentley to you as they're, as they're loving their newborn daughter, Charlie. Father, as, uh, as I know that their hearts are wound tight with anxiety, I pray that your peace would be spoken into their heart, into their mind, that they might recognize that no one will ever love that little one more than you. Give them the ability to see your love on her behalf, to be able to rest fully and completely in your arms of grace. Pray for Steve and Candy as they Walk with them and I just uh, do a real powerful work. We ask that you would uh, restore her and heal her and bring her to 100% health. That's our desire. Of course, we submit to your will. Because you're always good and you never fail. Trust you. Father, we ask that you will order our steps. You will help us to make wise choices. Ask ourselves what, uh, what is your uh, opinion on the choices that we have to make, the reaction and the decisions. We pray that everything we do this week will be for your glory. We love you. We trust you. We thank you for an opportunity to worship and lift you up today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen.